Curious Naked Diatribes. CND would like to give a warm welcome to our guest, Dr. Alex Kaznavich. Alex is a professor of sociology and anthropology at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He has authored and co-authored many books, including Frequently Asked White Questions, Making Sense of Society, The Radical Imagination, and of particular interest to our discussion today, Zapatistas and Zapatismo Beyond Borders. Alex, it's such an honor to have you on the program. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for the invitation to be here. It's been 30 years since the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas, Mexico. But before we get into it, um, I'd like to know more about this idea of collective liberation. I saw this term in one of your bios and was just delighted by it. <laughs> what is collective liberation to you and how does it figure into your work? Oh, that's that's a wonderful question. I'm I'm really happy to start with that one. Yeah, uh, collective liberation, I think, is uh, one of the phrases that I came across in my political activism and academic research, and I just was immediately drawn to it. So I, I'd love to say that I coined it, but that's absolutely not true. I'm drawing on sort of a rich history of anarchism, of radical feminism, of um, anti-colonial struggles uh, that have all sort of circled around this term as an idea. Uh, so the basic principle at the root of it is that uh, nobody is really free until everyone is, and, um, and that doesn't mean obviously some utopian space of total autonomy where you get to do absolutely anything you want but this whole idea that freedom is always relational that you know I build my freedom in relation to you and it's not just a question of negative freedom it's uh, it's it's this horizon towards which we're walking where we're trying to make sure we have the ability to do as little harm <laughs> to each other either accidentally right. or intentionally as possible but along the way building ways of relating to one another and building institutions in our society that actually um, put that autonomy um, that relational autonomy you know the right to give myself law the right for you to rule over yourself always relationally to the um, other people we occupy society with and I just think it's it's sort of a, a fundamental um, liberation principle that takes us way beyond the notion of individual rights which are always you know people are arguing about oh well my freedom my freedom and that's such a limited way of thinking about uh, how we can really achieve a society that's that's both egalitarian but also free and just right well we're going to carry this idea into the discussion of uh, the zapatista movement and um if you wouldn't mind just giving us a thumbnail sketch of who the Zapatistas are and also how you discovered their revolutionary movement, what got you interested enough to dedicate two books on them? <laughs> uh, great question. Uh, so the Zapatistas are um, an indigenous revolutionary movement located in the far southeast of Mexico. Their territory in rebellion um, constitutes around a third, maybe up to half of the state of Chiapas in the far southeast of Mexico. Um, the Zapatistas emerged publicly on January 1st, 1994, which, um, you know, seems hilariously ancient history to most of my students and other young folks these days, but I remember it quite well. Um, and uh, I think the the there's just several important sort of pillars to mention about the Zapatistas. I think the first one was... Um, 
one of the things that makes them so important is that they emerged at a moment when, for folks, again, who maybe don't remember that time so well or perhaps weren't weren't born yet, um, the Soviet Union had just collapsed, the Berlin Wall had come down. Um, in many ways, like a great moment, obviously, because state-sponsored communism was not the uh, liberatory horizon that most people were hoping for. But on the other hand, a moment of real uh, great disaffection and disappointment on the part of people who are hoping for something other than unfettered global capitalism and, and all its trappings. Um, and so it was kind of a dark time because, you know, for all of its gross imperfections, at least the USSR represented something of a like a counterbalance or an alternative to that sort of just, you know, the global domination of capitalism. And so when the Zapatistas emerged on January 1st, 1994, out of the jungles and canyons of Chiapas, they they marched out of these uh, territories, seized several cities, municipalities, uh, towns in the far southeast and declared immediately that they weren't at war with Mexican people that their aim was not to uh, seize power and and tell everybody else how they had to live, but that they were rising up uh, in arms because they had been given no choice, that it was either die on their knees, essentially, or live on their feet, and that this... Uh, this war that they initiated very clearly directed against the Mexican presidency and um, with, the in, with the aim of overcoming the army and uh, marching on Mexico City so that Mexicans could freely and democratically um, govern themselves and rearrange their society. That was, I, I think it's hard now in the aftermath of Occupy and Black Lives Matter and Idle No More and all the movements we've seen since, really, including the alter-globalization struggles of the early 2000s. People are like, oh yeah, I, I get that now. Like I get, we, we kind of hear this rhetoric, but at the time it was really, it was new. It, it did not follow the kind of revolutionary propaganda of previous uh, generations. It spoke a language of freedom and democracy and dignity in ways that didn't come down to sort of like this gross socialist technocracy or the awful kind of like, oh, well, you know, capitalism will eventually be a tide that, rise, that uh, um, raises all boats. But until we get there, you know, uh, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet, which of course, you know, for people in the, uh, in the so-called underdeveloped world, that's a lot of egg breaking, you end up doing and right. not much omelet eating. So the Zapatistas um, were just this incredibly bright revolutionary spark. And in terms of their roots, well, they are um, they're an indigenous movement um, that really has multiple root systems, one of which is the Mexican revolutionary tradition. Their name, Zapatista, is a... Um, is uh, intentionally chosen to honor the greatest, most unsullied, most authentic revolutionary hero of the Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1917. That was Emiliano Zapata, who is the general of the uh, Liberating Army of the South, and to this day regarded as kind of like... Um, uh, to say he's like a Mexican Robin Hood doesn't do it justice. It's you know he's really this um, this figure who looms so large and out of a revolution that was very like so many that was very compromised and ended up being very imperfect. He's the figure who most authentically um, really spoke out for grassroots democracy, for the right of peasants and non-elites to have a say over the way their lives were lived, and really tried to chart a course towards the kind of vision of autonomy, grassroots self-governance 
that we see in many movements today. So uh, the Zapatistas, the modern day Zapatistas named themselves after him as a way of laying claim to the unfinished but authentic revolutionary struggle of the 1910s. And yeah, basically come out of this incredible crucible of um, really overwhelming state repression, in especially in the far south of Mexico. And we're not just talking about you know, sort of recent years, we're really talking about since the Mexican Revolution. So the, since the 1920s, the South has been, I mean, all of Mexico to some extent, like much of the global South, but <clears throat> the use of paramilitaries, hired guns, um, a, a, to say that the, the bureaucrats and uh, civil officials are indifferent to the struggle of the poor or indigenous people really doesn't go far enough. Actively hostile, you know, prisons, like every every mechanism in sort of um, mainstream society used to make sure that peasants, indigenous people, you know, any sector uh, struggling to achieve um, social justice really like either had to fully um, bow down to the powers that be or was essentially wiped out. And so this incredibly difficult situation where people are organizing, being disappeared, being arrested, being put in prison, um, leads to a long period of above ground, very careful, very dignified, very public organizing, kind of, you know, what you might think of labor politics, protest politics. But through the 19, in the beginning of the 1980s, it really becomes clear that uh, peasants organizing for a better life for themselves and their families and communities aren't going to get anywhere um, by trying to ingratiate themselves to the state. And into this very difficult, very boiler pot matrix enters um, revolutionaries from the north of Mexico, from Mexico City, non-Indigenous people. Um who have come there to radicalize the Indians, right? To radicalize the poor. And instead, they're very quickly met by um, people who are like, yeah, we're, we're interested, but your, yeah, your revolutionary lingo, your coordinates of struggle, your, even your sense of who you are in history doesn't make any sense to us. So how about you come here, learn about the realities of, of this place, and then we'll talk. And to their great credit, this small group of urban revolutionaries do just that. They learn the languages of the indigenous people. They learn their history. They learn their customs, mythologies. And like out of this incredible moment, and I think it's hard to under it's hard to overstate the importance of this. This kind of like Marxist, uh, revolutionary, modern uh, set of ideals animating the revolution gets subordinated to the indigenous realities of the far southeast and out of this a brand new kind of struggle is born and and this is really what makes the Zapatistas to so many people so interesting including me and so this kind of segues nicely into my own <laughs> history so I was a uh, a young person growing up in southern Ontario um kind of like middle class by social position, but my parents struggled a lot in different ways uh, economically. And, um, and we had uh, uh, brushes with, you know, racism, other kinds of uh, forms of oppression. But living in the global north at the time as a middle class Canadian kid, it was hard to feel like you were one of the legitimately oppressed of the world and it was hard to figure out where you could find coordinates like feeling like you wanted something different than this version of sort of liberal capitalist society that was being fed to us at that time 
and looking around for inspiration and just not finding it politically anywhere around me. And then, yeah, on January 1st, 1994, this revolutionary movement explodes out of nowhere, and seemingly out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, northern media channels are covering it nonstop. And I remember reading about it in the paper at the time and just being swept away really by the audacity, not knowing anything about rev- like I was just a teenager about to go off to university. And, um, and so I had no real uh, elaborate revolutionary knowledge at the time, but it just was so clear that these people were real, like authentic, you know, that they were deeply uh, dignified in their struggle, that they didn't want to, you know, their conspicuous uh, avoidance of civilian casualties in the first few days of the uprising was so remarkable and so different than what we'd seen in other places. And so like lots of other people, I was swept away in that. But really, it wasn't until um, I went off to university and then had the chance in different classes, you know, professors give you the opportunity to do a paper on something. And I was like, well, you know, I could do something easy and boring or I could, you know, use these opportunities as ways of exploring something that I'm passionate about in the world. And um, I think notably, I'd be remiss in, in not adding that uh, I was a huge fan of the band Rage Against the Machine at the time. <laughs> And right. uh, Zach DeLaRocca, the front man of Rage Against the Machine, but the band as a whole, uh, if anybody loves and remembers their second album, Evil Empire, uh, that contains all kinds of songs about the Zapatistas on it. Um, Rage uh, became sort of like this, uh, you know, m- musical uh propaganda machine <laughs> in the best sense for, for Zapatismo. Right. And again, I was, you know, I was swept away by it, by the... Um, by just the idea that it was possible to transform your world from the grassroots in a way that didn't mean that you were going to impose your version of what the future ought to be on everybody else, but that that was a struggle that we were going to make as we walked it together. I just think there's so much we can learn from that. Yeah, that's interesting, that idea, that, that music can be such a vehicle mm-hmm. for these kinds of uh, revolutionary ideas. Absolutely, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so I understand that the timing of the Zapatista National Liberation Army uprising on January 1st, 1994, uh, wasn't chosen at random. It was also the day that the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, went into mm-hmm. effect. Can you talk about how the Zapatistas viewed NAFTA and what it meant for them? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like much is made, and rightly so, of the date they chose to begin their uprising, Um So January 1st, 1994 was indeed the date that the North American Free Trade Agreement came into effect, binding Canada, the United States, and Mexico together at the time in the biggest so-called free trade zone um, in the world. And really, um, NAFTA, again, hard to remember now for most (laughs) folks, but really like at the time was a template for the model of neoliberal capitalist globalization that would come to dominate like trade agreements from then on out, replacing an earlier model of capitalist development. And for a lot of people, um, that became a huge point of contention. Maybe folks remember the huge shutdown demos that went on in Seattle in 1999 against the World Trade Organization, where all kinds of folks came together. But that moment's not even possible without the Zapatista uprising in 1994, in part because the Zapatistas really are the spark that lights the fuse of that alter-globalization movement. But also because they um, they do the hard work of very in very like inspiring but very straight ahead um, language of pointing out how these deals don't benefit ordinary folks uh, and in fact 
turn they don't they don't like lead to this uh world that we were being sold at the time of oh it's going to be a wonderful cosmopolitan planet where everybody will be you know their own entrepreneur and you're going to enter into this incredible marketplace of ideas no i mean you know and the zapatistas have um you know uh one of their early documents that was released is a is a document called chiapas the southeast in two winds where their spokesperson um Subcomandante Marcos at the time lays out exactly what it looks like to be on the ground in Chiapas. And he narrates his story of, of globalization as if it's a parasite um, sucking resources and blood and, you know, like all these things that people need to live out of the state, out of the territory, feeding these arteries of global capitalism and leaving only death and disease and, and misery behind. And, um, that's not a reality that's very far from many people's minds today. I think, you know, a lot of this uh, pushback against what we call capitalist globalization today and even the right wing reaction to it has picked up on, on a lot of this. It really hasn't been a story of um, collective betterment. But at the time, you know. Again, the Soviet Union had just fallen. This idea of globalization being this great cosmopolitan humanizing tide was something that people were were eager to believe in, even if there was very little evidence for it. And uh, the Zapatistas very cannily chose January 1st as the date of their uprising because they wanted to indict NAFTA. And indeed, their spokespeople said in the days after their uprising that NAFTA was a death sentence for indigenous peoples in Mexico. And the reason they said that was because uh, as a, um, a criteria of Mexico entering into NAFTA with Canada and the U.S., they had to make critical changes to their constitution. And one of those changes was a change to Article 27, which is one of the most important uh, revolutionary articles to emerge. So the Mexican constitution is a product of the revolution. Comes, It's made by the, the winners, essentially, after uh, the, the revolution concluded in the 20s. And um, as a, because the peasantry was really so critical in the Revolutionary War, and they were, you know, an armed peasantry, even after Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata are basically executed by the um, the post-revolutionary state, um, they got to figure out what the powers that be have to figure out what to do with these peasants who are like, you know, mobilized right. and armed. <laughs> and right. so um, they say, okay, well, well, we'll give you one of your big demands, which is land reform. And um, so, you know, no surprise to anybody today, especially anybody in the global south, but obviously um, access to land is one of the most significant things for communities, especially for indigenous and peasant communities. Um, and that was one of the most unequal things in Mexico. So you had all these big um, entities holding large parcels of land and, and increasingly less and less for communities themselves. So as a result of the revolution, the state comes in and says, OK, we'll redistribute land. And that is enshrined in Article 27 of the Constitution that that basically communities can petition the state for the right to own the land communally that their, that their community sits upon. Upon. Now, this is never really instituted fairly or well at any point in Mexican history, but uh, the fact that it exists is like this this this, um, this one kind of thread that that keeps the hopes of people of campesinos of peasants essentially like uh, agricultural workers alive, right? And in the lead up to NAFTA, 
Article 27 is basically struck from the Constitution and land reform ends. And it's at this point that the peasants are like, well, you know, if, if there's no reason for us to play by the rules, then how are we going to defend ourselves, our, our lives, and not just our individual lives, but our communal lives. And so this becomes one of the biggest sparks motivating the Zapatista uprising. So it's an indictment of uh, sort of the corporate model of globalization, the corporate capitalist model, but it's more importantly, I think, an indictment of the specific transformations on the ground in Mexico and the communities the Zapatistas are coming from. And they, this is kind of like a theme that they will re- reiterate over their entire existence, which is that every legitimate revolutionary struggle emerges to address the conditions it faces in its own territory. And that means like what we want to build is not just one big umbrella struggle where one set of people, in this case, let's say indigenous peasants in Mexico, get to be the leaders of the whole thing, but that what we want is this network of struggles, of struggles for humanity and against neoliberalism that will create this um, this world that is globalized, interconnected, but not reduced to any one group's agenda, desires, demands. And um, this becomes one of the central planks. And yeah, NAFTA is absolutely huge in catalyzing that. But again, I think, you know, one thing I would say is that for many observers in the global north, they made a lot of the NAFTA connection, and rightly so. But I think it's really important to note that there were many different grievances animating the Zapatistas. And while January 1st was chosen as a symbolic date, it also um, was meant to mark 500 years of resistance to colonization. So uh, those two things overlap. And, um, and it's important not, I think, for those of us who live outside of Mexico, not to simply say, oh, this is like the beginning of the movement against capitalist globalization, because it's also like more to do with the conditions on the ground, more to do with the uh, history and the lived realities of those communities as they were experiencing them at the time and as they were, you know, really confronting the reality that they, they wouldn't be able to exist as they as they did, even in the precarious conditions that they did at the time, if they didn't stand up for that right to live on territory that they collectively controlled. This concludes part one of CND's three-part series with Dr. Alex Kazanabish looking at 30 years of the Zapatistas' revolutionary movement in southeastern Mexico. Part two of the series releases Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Please join us. For a free MP3 of the entire full-length interview, click the link in the show notes. Curious Naked Diatribes is part of the Javi Media Network, on the web at javimedia.net. Send email to info at javimedia.net. Javi Media.